The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David has a PhD in economics from Michigan State and has been with J.P. Morgan for 16 years. He analyzes the impact of economic forces on asset class returns and sits on J.P. Morgan's Funds Operating Committee. Thanks for being here, David. Glad to be here, Darren. So let's start with your mid-year outlook, which just came out. Um, You've written that the U.S. is in a slow motion slowdown, but I think you believe that we could still avoid a recession and may get the fabled soft landing that the markets um, have been anticipating. Um, Could you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, I think that's possible. Uh, Certainly three months ago, that looked a little less likely. We had uh, a lot of worries about the debt ceiling and we had the mini crisis in regional banks And it looked like we were headed for uh, a a very rough summer here. Uh, But some of those threats have receded. And meanwhile, American consumers have really held in there pretty well. Uh, In particular, auto sales have come back. Uh, They they look relatively strong, at least compared to the last few years. And and also, we're continuing to see hiring. Uh, we, We went into this year with a lot of excess demand for workers, and that seems to be uh, sustained here. Um, So... Unless something else, you know, we're, we're, going to, we're going to see slow growth. That, that's a given. But I think we're still at least one medium-sized banana skin away from recession. So if we avoid something very bad happening over the next six months, I think we could get out of 2023 without actually seeing the recession that a lot of people have been predicting for a long time. Well, that, that's an interesting analogy, a banana skin. So what would that banana skin be? Uh, it seems like we are in a fairly precarious spot with the Fed, um, uh, you know, increasing rates so much, withdrawing um, stimulus, uh, you know, from the federal government, um, consumer payments, um, consumer transfers and stimulus kind of going down a lot. So what, what, is, the, what is the concern or what, what could tip the economy into a recession? Well, usually it's, uh, usually it's things that you don't anticipate. Uh, a, banana, a banana skin that you see coming, you can usually avoid. Um, so I'm not that worried about consumer spending. I am still somewhat worried about regional banks. <clears throat> what we could see is a, situ- you know, a sort of a repeat of what we saw in March, where as these interest rates go up, there are, and particularly as uh, some banks get into trouble with their commercial real estate portfolios, and with deposit flight, uh, we could see a situation where maybe some small lenders get into trouble. Uh, maybe there's a run on their stock uh, or depositors decide, strictly uninsured depositors decide to take money out. And the Federal Reserve is unable to really manage that process properly. And so you get um, a tighter squeeze on credit and greater fear in markets. So that's one of the things that could happen. Um, but most of the things that I worry about are, frankly, not you know, very predictable. Um, You could have some environmental issue which affects global oil supplies. Uh, You could have some further military instability um, due to the actions of Vladimir Putin or uh, Xi Jinping or or something else. 
Um, so usually the, the kind of things we worry about are not predictable. But the, I think the big difference is if the economy is growing very slowly to start, that's what makes it vulnerable. You know, if the economy were powering ahead of three or four percent growth, uh, it could take a hit. But it's kind of like when you ride a bicycle very slowly, one, one little nudge and you fall over. And this is this economy is very much like a bicycle being uh, ridden very slowly up a hill. Uh, and so it wouldn't it wouldn't take a huge hit uh, to put us into recession. So we're kind of wobbling a bit. Um, one of the things that I that struck me from your outlook is uh, is the idea that I think you're somewhat dovish on inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you pointed out that um, in the the most recent inflation readings, uh, I think X Shelter um, auto insurance and soaring rates for auto insurance uh, accounted for something like seventy percent of the increase. Um, which is, is really amazing. Um, many of us are paying higher rates for auto insurance. And I think you pointed out that it's tied to um, the high prices that we're seeing for both, both used and new cars. But at the same time, one could argue that these are things that will be transitory and that are not going to continue to increase at the rate that we've seen um, in the last year. Is that one of the reasons why you're somewhat um, uh, upbeat, I guess, about inflation? Well, yes, because, uh, the, the, you know, if you look at all of inflation, it's, uh, you know, consumer prices, including food and energy. Now, we know that food and energy are commodity prices, and certainly food prices are much higher than they were a few years ago, but they're not rising at anything like the rate they, they did. Energy prices have uh, peaked out and have come down. We're back down to, you know, oil prices that started the, in the 70s. So I think that on commodity prices, food and energy, we've seen this round trip. Uh, we know that goods prices, things like uh, you know furniture, appliances, and so forth, we know that that got, got those prices shot up during the pandemic because of <clears throat> the supply chain shortages. But we also know that those supply chain shortages uh, or supply chain issues ha- have eased. Um, and then, so that, that's on the goods side. And then on the services side, everybody acknowledges that that the government's measure on shelter costs which includes both actual rent and a huge category. It's about a quarter of CPI is owner's equivalent rent. Everybody realizes that's lagged, and the, and the Federal Reserve says that. And, and so, yes, that's high on a year-over-year basis, but we know it's lagged. We know rents have stopped rising, and that's going to come down. So that last category you were mentioning there, that's the favorite one of Jay Powell. He talks about it a lot, the Fed chairman. He talks about core services excluding shelter. And he says, well, yeah, but we're still seeing sticky inflation there. But that's the part where if you examine it, literally 70% of the year-over-year increase in CPI core services X shelter in um, May came from those two categories of higher auto insurance payments, which are up 17% year-over-year, and higher um, auto repair bills, which are up 13.5% year-over-year. But if you look at that, as you said, what's happening is car prices shot up over the course of the pandemic and in, in 2022. And with a lag, the insurance in those cars are going up. And with a lag, the cost of repairing those cars are going up. But we know, as you said, those car prices have stopped going up. So we know this is, this is transitory. So everywhere we look at this, we either see something that is transitory, something that is mismeasured, some, but we don't see anything that is really sticky that's going to hang around in a soft economy. And that's why I'm so convinced that, you know, we, you know, this has been an inflation roller coaster. But the one thing you know about a roller coaster is you actually get off where you got on. We got on at 2% inflation, and I think we're getting off at 2% inflation also. 
Well, what about um, wages, um, you know, and the idea of the wage price spiral? Uh, you know, the labor market is still extremely healthy. Um, wages um, are still increasing, albeit not nearly at the rate that they were in the past year. Um, are you seeing, and, and that's a, trans, a transmission uh, mechanism for inflation throughout the economy, are you not concerned about wage growth and the wage price spiral? No, because I, I, I mean, I think this is all out of a very dated playbook going back to the 1970s when unions were strong in America and people could negotiate high wage increases because of inflation. We have actually seen through April, we saw 25 straight months in which the average hourly earnings of workers went up by less than CPI. Now, if you think about that, that's really rather odd because in equilibrium, if, you know, if the economy is balanced, wages actually should go up by the amount of the increase in output prices or CPI plus productivity. But wages weren't even keeping pace with CPI. And what that tells me is that, you know, despite this very tight labor market, there's only 6% of the private sector workers are in a union. Most workers don't really have that much bargaining power. It's a very unequal workplace. And people aren't pounding on the boss's door saying, give me a raise or I quit. The quits rate is actually coming down. And so what I'm seeing is wages are only partially compensating workers for past inflation, and they're not really pushing inflation higher. I mean, if, if wages are consistently going up by less than CPI, you have to say that all the wages are doing are slowing the rate at which prices are coming down. So I don't think of it as a price wage spiral. I think of it as a sort of a price wage slinky where it's coming down the stairs, it's coming down the stairs slowly, but it is definitely coming down the stairs. I think both wage growth and CPI inflation will diminish over the next two years. Well, obviously, if you're right, that would be great um, for the economy. It would also give the Fed more uh, flexibility not to uh, continue increasing rates. Um, we're at around 5% now. Do you see the Fed raising rates a couple more times this year? Unfortunately, I do think that they're going to raise them at least once more. Um, I think they're going to raise them at the end of July, almost you know, regardless of what inflation data we get. As the rest of the year goes on, though, I, I wonder if, I mean, I think they've moved to a point where instead of raising rates every meeting, I think they now intend to raise rates every other meeting for the next two rate hikes. That's, that seems to be what they're thinking about. So that would mean a rate increase at the end of July and then another rate increase on the 1st of November. Um, and I think it's possible they'll skip that last rate increase because I think they're going to have just very good news on in inflation. I think they're going to be looking at a CPI inflation rate, which is um, uh, just above 3%. Um, but really, when they, as they look at it, I mean, even the, the you know, Chairman Powell's favorite measure, I think that's going to take a bit of a swan dive over the next few months. Because when I look at the monthly track on uh, these auto insurance and repair costs, um, they were very high a year ago. And I think that that year over year number is going to come down. So I think the Fed's going to have so much good news on inflation that it's going to be really hard for them to justify pushing interest rates any higher after the July, the July hike. Well, um, so if, if you're right, um, that should be very positive for the stock market. Um, and before I go on, I just wanted to remind the audience to please submit your questions and um, we'll try to get to a few um, in a few minutes. Um, so there's a, an interesting disconnect, I think, going on between the stock and the bond market. Um, the bond market seems almost entirely convinced that a recession is coming and the timing of it is uncertain. But um, if you look at the yield curve, um, which is the spread between short and long term treasuries, um, it's been inverted for quite a quite a while now. 
Um, and by some measures, it's one of the most inverted yield curve we've seen in decades. And in the past, it's been an extremely accurate predictor of recessions, which raises the question, is the bond market right and the stock market is wrong or is it a bit of both? Can you kind of explain what's going on there? Well, I mean, first of all, let me, let me be clear. I think there is a significant risk of recession, but I think it's probably less than 50% before the end of the year. But every quarter you go thereafter, you know, there, there, you know there's a, there may be a banana skin in each quarter. So, um, you know, the cumulative probability of recession does rise. But I think it's a mistake to look at the, the very steep inversion of the yield curve as telling you that much. Because remember, you know, prior to the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve really didn't mess around with quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. I mean, they didn't, they didn't um, really impact the long end of the bond market directly. So that's one thing. And the second thing, and, and this is actually more important right now, the Federal Reserve's own forecasts say that they will cut the federal funds rate four times in 2024 and five times in 2025. I can't remember any occasion in history where the Federal Reserve has promised to push interest rates up and then promised in short order to cut them that dramatically. And I think the, really the, the, the inversion of the yield curve just reflects that, um, that sense that the Federal Reserve is, is uh, essentially telling you, you that they're going to overshoot and cut rates. Um, so you know, when you see an inverted yield curve, it's usually because people expect the Fed to cut rates. And the reason people expect the Fed to cut rates is because we're in a recession. But this time, the Fed's saying they're going to cut rates anyway, whether we're in a recession or not. So I don't well, think- why, why, would the Fed, why would the Fed cut rates if we're not- in a recession or heading into one? Because they, they have an, uh, I mean, it, obviously the theory they, they seem to have, because this is in their forecast, is that if they can push rates high enough, they'll break the back of uh, inflation, and then they can ease off the pressure, having done that job, and maybe the economy can just skate through. Uh, but I, they do recognize that in the long run, having a federal funds rate up at 5.5% is too high. They say, again, in their forecast, that in the long run, they think the federal funds rate ought to be at two and a half percent. So they are deliberately, explicitly overshooting. I don't agree with the policy. I think it's crazy, frankly. But, but they are very explicitly saying, look, we are overshooting. We're over tightening here to really kill inflation. And then we're going to back down to what we think is a more normal, reasonable, long term level of interest rates. It sounds like um, really attempts to thread the needle to, you know, you want to break the back of inflation. Um, and once you've done that, you, you can ease up on rate hikes um, as inflation comes down without somehow tipping the economy into uh, a significant recession. I don't know if they've ever done that in the past, um, but it seems like a, a pretty difficult job. Well, it's, it's one they shouldn't attempt. I mean, I think they, they've, been, they've really tried to micromanage the macro economy for too long. Uh, the Federal Reserve is very good at dealing with banking crisis, with financial crisis. If, the, if some crazy thing happens to the economy, they can step in and make sure that, that the financial system works. What they're not good at is stimulating growth with low interest rates or cutting inflation with high interest rates. And in fact, by keeping a lot of the problems we face today are because they kept rates at super low levels for 15 years and caused a, a balloon in asset prices and all sorts of very unwise bets to be taken in, in markets. I mean, that's a lot of our problems are really a legacy of that. And, you know, the Federal Reserve, you're right. I mean, I think it's a very, I think they're trying to swat a fly with a sledgehammer. I think they're, they're going to miss the fly and cause a lot of collateral damage. All right. Well, let's hope that the sledgehammer isn't too, um, too bad for the overall economy and stocks and bonds. And let's talk a little bit about your outlook for asset class uh, returns. And we can start with the two big ones, 
um, stocks and bonds. Uh, stocks aren't cheap based on valuation measures like the cyclically adjusted Schiller PE. Bonds aren't particularly cheap either. If you look at spreads between corporate credit and treasuries, uh, for stocks, which we should start with, let's talk about what areas you like right now. I think you've said that you um, you kind of favor defensive areas, uh, staples, utilities, and healthcare, but you'd be willing to add to profitable growth stocks on a pullback. Um, is that your view? And what's your overall outlook for the rest of the year for the stock market? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I think the, I think the first thing if you're investing in stocks is to remember you're a long-term investor. Uh, nobody should invest in stocks for the next six months. And when you're a long-term investor, you should think about, well, what happens to the stock market through some cycles here? And, you know, in, in good times and when rates are low, uh, you can see some uh, speculation emerge. Um, and, uh, you know, but when you have a, a correction and that, that gets uh, uh, wiped away. So you really just need to look at valuations. And when we look at valuations, I think the thing that jumps out at me is, Yes, I think I think this is a time still to be somewhat defensive. I think value does look cheaper than growth, but I'm particularly struck by the the, the break between, say, the top ten stocks in the S and P 500, the very biggest companies, which are extremely expensive by historical standards, and everything else. The other, you know, 484 companies in the S and P 500 uh, are trading at absolutely normal multiples. So the first thing I do is, you know, try to underweight the the mega cap. I think that's the most important thing. Uh, and then the second thing I'd say is do look international when it comes to stocks. I know it's very unpopular because stocks, uh, international stocks had underperformed for a long time while the dollar was rising since, really since 2008. But the dollar does seem to have turned last September. I think it probably could come down some more. And so I, think it's a, I do think there are better opportunities from a valuation perspective in international uh, uh, stocks than in U.S. stocks right now. Well, let's talk about um, first the, the part of what you said about what's fueled the rally um, and where to go from here. So it has been fueled by these mega cap stocks, particularly in tech, uh, you know, Apple, uh, Microsoft, NVIDIA, um, they've, uh, Amazon. Um, they've just been uh, tremendous stocks um, and they've lifted almost the entire market, carried the entire market on their shoulders this year. And so is the idea that... Um, Valuations for these stocks are now excessive, um, and uh, but the market has fairly reasonable valuations pretty much everywhere else. Um, what will what will lift those either valuations or prices for those all, all those other sectors? And um, and then again, you recommended kind of getting defensive. Is the idea that you want to be in these somewhat defensive, more value oriented sectors because you are anticipating a slowdown? and or a recession, um, and these t typically tend to perform well um, in, in the run-up to, to that scenario? Well, uh, partly. I mean, I think that, I think that right now, as you, as you say, the, these mega cap stocks are doing very well, but really it's all about valuations. It's not about uh, profits. And what happens is, you know, for the, the longer a stock is undervalued, uh, you know, the more uh, capital it accumulates, the more dividends it pays out, um, you know, so if you, if, for example, if you're an income investor, you can get a pretty good income that way. But generally speaking, if, if it's a good company, it's going to get more and more valuable and, and more and more underpriced over time. So I think you can sort of put in a long term bet and just wait for things to shake out. And what usually happens is when you have a market correction and that could be caused by the economy or something else. But if you have a big market correction, then the things that are most vulnerable are the things that are most overpriced. 
Um, and so uh, that's really why I'd want to be defensive here, because I think uh, at some stage you may have a big correction. And I think the biggest names will get hurt the most by that. Um, and then, so I think, I think that's, that's uh, really part of the story here. Uh, but over time, you know, I think valuations do make sense uh, as, a, as a primary guidepost for investing. The problem has been that when interest rates were so low for so long, it was easy to finance any uh, piece of speculation you wanted. Now we're sort of moving to an environment in which interest rates won't be low going forward. They won't, we won't get back to where we were uh, 10 years ago. And in a when people have to actually pay to borrow money, I do think that valuations will matter more going forward than they have done um, in recent years. Okay, so let's talk about um, the fixed income or bond side of things. Um, we have a few questions from listeners on that. Stephen asks, how much should your portfolio be in fixed income? Uh, for example, treasuries um, in a slowing economy. Uh, and then we also have a question from Eric, how much duration risk? should one take for both individual bonds and bond funds? And, and I think both of those questions kind of get at the idea that, you know, yields have risen um, significantly in the last year. We're now around four to 5% um, on short-term bonds. Um, to, I think a lot of people that looks attractive and it raises a good question of, do you want to really be in bonds now um, if stocks are overvalued or at least fully valued? And what's your return potential or outlook for fixed income? Well, the, the, first of all, on, on the first question, what's an appropriate allocation? It really does. It, it really depends upon where you are in life. Uh, you know, as you get older, or if you're of a more cautious um, mindset when it comes to investing, then you probably should increase your fixed income allocations. Um, if if you're younger or you you feel you know more willing to take a risk, you can increase equity allocations. But it really is a an individual by individual um, issue. On the uh, on the duration question, you know, you you mentioned earlier that it is an inverted yield curve, and that means you're getting paid less in the short run on on long term bonds than you are on um, on cash. The funny thing is, we've gone, you know, I think I think we're pretty close to peak CD yields. We're very close to the highest CD yields we're going to see in this uh, in this cycle, as far as we can tell. And we look back at the last six times that CD yields hit a peak, and the funny thing is that never once in, in those six occasions did CDs turn out to be the best investment over the next 12 months. Usually bonds beat them, but and, and or I think in all cases, long-term bonds be, beat uh, CDs in that scenario, but also the equity market usually beat them also. So what happens is when you've got those, those higher rates, something goes wrong and then the Federal Reserve changes its tune and then long-term bonds fall. And so you get this one-year better return from bonds as long-term interest rates went down. So for example, you've got a 3.7% yield right now in a 10-year treasury. If, if we suddenly thought there was going to be a recession by the end of the year and the Federal Reserve was going to start cutting interest rates aggressively, you could easily see that go below uh, below 3, maybe down to 2.7%. And suddenly you scoop up a, you know, a significant um, uh, capital gain just on that. So... Um, that's so. I, th I think it's okay to have have money in bonds. I think um, I think in fact the the yield on bonds right now looks better than it's looked for many many years. I mean, uh, and uh, so. I'd but you're still to... not. But you're still not getting much of a real return, even at four to five percent. Not no not, not not looking 
not looking backwards, but it's uh, looking forwards. It's it's a it's a decent return, and it and it has a diversification benefit. I think what happened last year is people said, you know, bonds didn't even protect me. Yeah, they didn't protect you because inflation was going up, and this was the first time in forty two years where we've seen a big slump in the stock market being made worse by a big slump in the bond market. Usually bonds zag when stocks zig. And the only time that doesn't work is when inflation's going up. But inflation's now coming down, which is actually helping both stocks and bonds this year. But going forward, if I'm right on inflation, inflation just calms down to 2% or, or below, then you're going to get that traditional negative relationship going. So when your stock market, when your stocks are in trouble, your bonds are going to do better. I think we're going to reestablish that. I, I mean, I will admit that, that you know, as an investor, I do like equities more than fixed income in the long run. I'm just saying that relative to recent years, fixed income does look more attractive than it's looked like in, looked in, in a long time. Okay. And, you're, and just to summarize, you're kind of arguing that um, the outlook for bonds and bond funds is actually a bit more favorable even than it would be for a CD. So if you can get like 4% in a CD, that's pretty good, but you'll probably do better um, hanging on to bonds and benefiting from some capital gains um, yeah, bond because- rally. Because the problem is, if, if, if even if you take the Federal Reserve at its word that that it's uh, you know it's it's uh, going to you know going to wait until the end of this year to to cut rates and not cut rates until until twenty twenty four. Even if even if that happens, they have promised rate cuts in twenty twenty four, and I suspect they will get more than four rate cuts. So yeah, the, the the reason that's important is yes, you can get good CD good yields on a one year CD right now, but what's going to be available in a year's time? Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is you you may you know you may get a a one-time great return for one year, uh, but you maybe get better long-term returns by investing in long-term bonds now. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, emerging markets and foreign markets. Uh, they have had many, many years of underperformance. They've done a bet, a, quite a bit better uh, recently. You mentioned that the dollar is now falling or has been falling, which has provided a tailwind uh, for U.S. investors in foreign markets. Do you see those trends continuing and do you think valuations are um, appropriately discounted now in foreign markets and um, should lead to better returns in the U.S.? Well, I think I think they're more than appropriately discounted. Uh, in fact, a dollar of earnings overseas uh, costs uh, roughly 30 percent less than a dollar of earnings in the United States. So the, the um, so international stocks do look very cheap. The dividend yield in international stocks is approximately twice the dividend yield in U.S. stocks. So I think the valuations look very good. You're right that, that the big, pro- big problem for many, many years has been a rising dollar has encouraged U.S. investors not to invest overseas. And as the dollar has gone up, the return, you know, if the dollar goes up 10% overnight, your international stocks are worth 10% less in the morning. So we've, that, I think, is, uh, has you know, compounded the problem international stocks have faced. Um, I think you know, emerging markets, there still is a question about China. Uh, and China is a big chunk of the emerging market universe and its impact on countries like Taiwan and Korea is also important. Um, so I do think there's a question mark there, but I think the Europe is doing quite well. Um, and I think the Eurozone is much more cohesive now that Britain has left the Eurozone area. Um, so I think there, there's, some, there's a good deal of promise there. I think there's promise in UK stocks, which are very cheap at this stage. Um, so I like developed country international uh, also. Uh, and I think emerging markets, if, if you can take an optimistic view on China in the long run, then I think it's an opportunity there. But I, I do think there are a lot of question marks over, around China still. Uh, well, that, that, is a, that is a great point. And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what is your outlook for China? I think they're talking about stimulating the economy there. 
Um, the recovery um, has not been terrific in China um, from from the COVID lockdowns. Uh, but um, and and the world needs China. Um, what what is your view on the impact of uh, you know China's domestic economy um, on stocks and bonds in the U.S. and um, you know global uh, economic growth? Well, I, you're right. I mean, China is important because it's become such a huge part of the global economy. Uh, the recovery from the COVID lockdowns, I think it'll take a while to play out, but I think it's. I think there are two big headwinds, maybe three. One problem is that uh, you have a still a huge overhang of excessive real estate investment in China, and it's it's you know how do you deflate a bubble without bursting it? I think the the Chinese government has continued to struggle with that. Um, I think a second problem is that uh, particularly in 2022 and 2021. Xi Jinping turned much more uh, nationalistic and much more restrictive in terms of free enterprise. And you really need to see China re-embrace full-throated free enterprise and um, engagement with the rest of the world to feel feel comfortable about the growth of the Chinese economy. Uh, And then there are are also geopolitical issues. I mean, we've seen um, some improvement, I think, in U.S.-Chinese relations with the Secretary Blinken's visit to China, but it's uh, it's very tentative, um, and we really need to know that we're going to have some stability there because people don't, you know, I think people are discouraged from taking and uh, making investment bets in China because of that geopolitical risk. So there are, there are a lot of things that I think are sort of getting in the way of China growing as strongly as it could, but a lot of it depends on President Xi. It's, I think a, a more, a more um, engaged um, view with regard to the rest of the world. Uh, a positive view in terms of its relationship with the United States and other democracies, uh, I think could uh, really help the Chinese economy grow. Great. Well, um, David, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, We hope you join us again tomorrow. Market Watch's Victor Reclatis speaks with the White House's John Kirby, and we'll be discussing President Biden's priorities when it comes to Ukraine, China, and other national security matters. Uh, Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.